Welcome to the IP2 Podcast. I'm Shay Ashby, and as always, I'm joined by Felix Chung. Today, we are joined by Jared Silva. He is the organized play manager at Star City Games, one of Legend Story Studios' partners in hosting premier-level events in North America, including this year's Pro Tour Baltimore, the upcoming U.S. National Championship in Las Vegas, and numerous callings and battled-hardened events. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's great to be here. Before we get too deep into business, we'd like to ask you a little bit about yourself. Can you share a little bit with us, Jared? Absolutely. Um, so I am uh, from Massachusetts originally, but I now live in Salem, Virginia, which is right outside of Roanoke, where Star City Games is located. Uh, I've been in the gaming industry since shortly after getting out of college in 2002. Uh, and I spent a little bit of time with uh, REI at doing inventory management but uh, I got picked up by Star City Games in 2007, and I've been working with them ever since. Nice. Can you share a little bit about your role as organized play manager at Star City Games? Uh, how long you've been there, what it, what it entails? My role is largely overseeing the large events that we run, um, as well as providing some support for in-store events that uh, get beyond kind of the weekly you know, Tuesday night flesh and blood or, you know, Friday night magic type stuff. Mm -hmm. um, when there's a uh, road to nationals or a skirmish event in the store, we usually provide support and judging for that from the organized play department. The work with the large events rolls all the way from staffing those events to being on site and making sure that they run smoothly. Okay. So being on site, does that mean that you spend a lot of time on the road then? Yeah. So we have between 10 and 14 events over the course of the year. And uh, I'm on site for all of them, as is my entire department. Okay. So you've been in the industry, industry for many years now. What ha have been some of the biggest changes that you've seen in the industry now compared to when you started? Well, the emergence of Flesh and Blood as another game that kind of targets the same demographics as Magic is a pretty big change. Um, when I first joined, we would handle Magic events, but then we would also handle uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! Um, uh -huh. And although those games are both very big, they have very different audiences. And so finding those events where there's a lot more kind of crossover audience between games has been uh, a big change over, you know, honestly, since the... Uh, resumption of events after the pandemic. Yeah, we're going to go do a deep dive into some of those events. But before we uh, we get right down into it, um, are you a family man, Jared? Do you have um, do you have kids? Yeah, I've got two kids, uh, Liliana and Aurelia. Um, they're nine and eleven, and uh, so they're just getting ready to go back to school. They went to bed about half an hour ago, yeah. <laughs> and so hopefully they're uh, not going to interrupt. Um, but, uh, I share custody with my, uh, ex-wife and so they go back and forth and that allows me to do some of the travel that I do. Okay. Yeah, no, I was going to ask because you, you must be on the road quite a bit, just uh, knowing how many events, uh, Star City Games, uh, does do in a year. Mm -hmm. And is, is does that pose any particular challenges for you as a, a parent or someone trying to keep yeah, your family absolutely. life together? So just kind of the basic logistics of it. Most of our events are driving distance. And so 
we drive to them on Thursday and then back from them on Monday. And okay. the way that we have our weekends arranged, it's set up so that I need to pick them up from school for Monday, which leads to a lot of early mornings for um, driving back from events. Well, thanks for that, Jared. So if, if you don't mind, tell me a little bit about SCG's event and tell us from the perspective of someone that's brand new, because both Shay and I, or at least speaking for myself, I had actually never been to a TCG type of gaming festival or premier sure. type event. Yeah. SCG con events are what we generally run unless it is a specific LSS event. We ran the Pro Tour uh, for LSS, and then we're running U.S. Nationals. Both of those are flesh and blood exclusive events, but most of our events uh, are SCG con events, which include Magic as well as flesh and blood. And we'll have vendors, we'll have artists from uh, the games, as well as just a whole host of events for the games. There's generally tentpole events, uh, a battle hardened or a calling for flesh and blood, um, and then you know twenty thousand dollar or ten thousand dollar events for magic. Uh, but then a whole bunch of side events. We'll have the newest set sealed. We'll have shapeshifter sealed. We'll have classic constructed events, blitz events. Uh, at some of the larger flesh and blood events, we also bring in commoner or UPF uh, to have kind of a real variety of side events available to to players. Those are generally scheduled, although we do have on-demand drafts. So if you get eight players together, they are able to kind of jump in and draft whenever you have the eight players. Oh, that sounds that sounds really great. So do you purposefully try to make it like such that someone that doesn't know too much about the game and just a little bit curious when they walk in, there's there's something for them to do, even if they're realistically not interested in like the big tentpole events like the callings or battle hardens? For that, we lean pretty heavily on sealed. Uh, we don't have a learn to play setup, unfortunately. Um it just doesn't have as much demand at these types of events. In order to be interested in this type of event, you have to be a fairly invested player. Um, right. We do some learn to play stuff at the dedicated flesh and blood events because of the way that they choose to market those and they try to kind of use them as more of outreach than SCG con events. SCG con events are generally for more invested players who are looking for a place to come and have a competitive or just kind of, hey, I can go and game all weekend type of outlet that you don't get at a local game store. Okay, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And at this event, there's also other other things to do, though, like you'll you'll bring in other vendors and mm -hmm. special guests as well, like like artists and sometimes cosplayers. And I'm, I'm curious when it's it comes to the LSS specific um, guests like artists is that something that scg brings in or is that something that lss um will will provide so we work with a number of artists um and we work with a few cosplayers uh but when we're working directly with lss they're generally the ones who are specifically choosing the artists to bring in um and the cosplayers that they want to contract to be at the event they have a uh they have a good picture of what characters they want to see cosplayed and they can work directly with a cosplayer, provide them some support, some mm -hmm. advanced 
art assets that will allow them to design a costume. Um, so that it, let's say if they're de debuting a new character and they want someone to cosplay it, they'll contact somebody that they trust ahead of time and say, Hey, we've got this character that's coming. We think you'd be a good fit to cosplay it. Are you interested in doing it? And then they'll work directly with them and say, Hey, and then come to us and say, we're going to bring, you know, Tappy Toe Claws out to the event. She's going to be cosplaying as this character. Um, and then usually if you have a contracted cosplayer, they'll be part of the, um, cosplay contest and they'll be one of the judges. Right. So it really, it's a good way to kind of work it all together and have that contact between someone who is doing this professionally with the people who are coming out and really working really hard to put on a fun show, but not kind of at that level yet. And so it, it's a w good way for people to get exposure to those professional cosplayers. Yeah, no, that's really cool. And one thing that I, you know, going into my first premier level event that I didn't realize that I would enjoy as much was having people like cosplayers there. It, it just really immerses you in the uh, in the event, right? It, it adds a lot to the atmosphere of the event just to say, oh, look, there's there's Dash, there's Prism, there's Bravo. Like, absolutely, there's there's a lot of really neat uh, cosplays that happen. Um, I know that there was Sash of Sendakai uh, and with flesh and blood, there are so many kind of iconic pieces that aren't just characters that uh, I've seen some really neat things that pe where people have pulled from different cards and decided to kind of put it together. I think there are a couple of people who have done certain armor sets mm -hmm. as a cosplay, which has been really neat. Yeah. Even just to further to, Felix's point, just even when you're walking around the con and being able to just kind of snag one of those cosplayers in and amongst whatever else you're doing and get, you know, a photo op with them and talk to them just for five minutes gives you a little bit something more to do than just hop from event to event. Absolutely. Well, Jared, you've been running these events, I think you mentioned since 2007, so that's 16 yes. years. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm curious. I'm always curious to hear how things change over time. And I mean, 16 years is a long time. I mean, 2007, 2006, that's MySpace era. And I'm just wondering <laughs> what, what's changed in the tournament organizer sphere since that time? And, and what kind of changes do you bring today two events like the upcoming Vegas event that we have here in a little bit. Mm -hmm. Well, so, I mean, I actually go back even a little further than that. Uh, I was running, you know, sealed events for my friends in high school, just in my living room. And then I went to college and I was, uh, I was part of the gaming club there. And then I came out of college and found out that, you know, there were actually magic judges. That was a real thing and certified as a judge in 2002 um, and so it's, it's been a long, strange trip. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I started off working with your move games up in Massachusetts and working at, you know, PTQs where we'd have 150 people. And then we had, you know, Grand Prix that would come to town and there would be pre-releases that were, uh, back then they were regional pre-releases. And so you everybody in from the whole area from New Hampshire and Vermont would all come down to Boston and you'd have, you know, 500, 800 players in a room playing with cards that they legitimately had not seen before. Um, the way that people found out about cards, a lot of 
the time was actually just pulling them out of a pack because the internet existed and there were some people who were starting to get onto it. But way back then, you know, you didn't have the full spoilers that you see now. You mm-hmm. didn't have the ability to get every single card that was spoiled somewhere into one place. Um, you know, LSS does a really good job of releasing cards to kind of build anticipation and then kind of getting the whole set out there. And I think that that's kind of the model today. But, you know, back when I started 20 years ago, you know, you found out about cards <laughs> the old fashioned way. Yeah. And so those events were fairly contained, fairly specific to areas. And even the big ones were, were not quite as big as, as some of them got over the years. Um, when we were involved in running Magic Gathering Grand Prix, we had some events that were 4,000 people. And wow. so there was a time when things got much, much larger. And then it kind of shrank back down a little bit. And um, the main events for for Magic got a bit smaller. And it became more about the stuff that was around them. And you shifted from being very much a tournament to more of an event. And so it was more about the cosplayers and more about the side events that you had available and more about, you know, for magic commander became a really big thing. And then, you know, there started to be more conventions with multiple games at them. And then for us, that became kind of a, a major real thing. Uh, when we came out of the pandemic and we incorporated flesh and blood on a consistent basis into SEG con events. And, you know, another thing that has changed pretty significantly is judge con. When I first was judging, it was, here's a box. Um, And now it's a contracted position. You know, it's not just, Oh, do you want to help out next month? Okay, great. And then at the end of the event, here's some, some product. It's, you know, okay, I'm going to apply for this event. I'm going to get selected. Once I'm selected, I'm going to receive a contract that I have to sign and then we have to do all of these different things. And so that has shifted significantly over, over time. The other piece that I think is probably the biggest change is the scorekeeping software. Way back, there was DCI Reporter. It was a very manual process. You printed out slips, you put them on tables, the people would fill them out and bring them back up to the scorekeeper and the scorekeeper would manually enter all of those results. That meant that it was not very scalable unless you had somebody who was really, really high level. There were probably five to 10 scorekeepers in the world who could handle a Grand Prix. Um, And so when those events got really big, one of the limiting factors was just the quality of scorekeeper that you could bring in. Now, LSS has been entirely online with GEM from the beginning. And that doesn't mean that you don't need somebody who understands the software, but that person is there to fix problems that come up, not to be the brute force entry system that they used to be. So the skill set that you need is different and it's more, can you fix this big problem rather than can you enter all of these results in an accurate fashion? Because there were some people who could go fast, but they'd get things wrong. And when you get things wrong, it just causes all kinds of problems downstream. 
and so now it's much more about do you understand how to kind of get through the flow of the event? Okay, we've got all of the results in, or we need to identify the tables that are missing. And how do you take that and turn around around, get all of your results pulled in and then push the pairings out to the players, identify any sort of problems you need to fix and fix them so that things can keep rolling on smoothly. But that middle of the round, enter all of these results has actually just disappeared. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's happened for Magic because they've shifted to Event Link. And for our larger events, we use Melee. And then LSS never had a paper pairings, paper slips uh, software at any point. It's all been online with Gem. Wow, thank you for that. Uh, just a little further question to it. If there is something like um, a misreport, h- how does that get fixed in between rounds? Like, are players notified? Um, I would imagine sometimes maybe both players say they won, and that's easy to identify. But um, is there any other things that might come up that where you have to like find players and resolve issues? Or how do you guys go about anything that might stand out as wrong? So the major scorekeeping things are... The most common is people didn't report their match. Right. And so you just have a match where neither of the players entered it through gem and you have to kind of find those players and get a result. Um, it's much less common for someone to dispute a match. Um, mm-hmm. Either player reporting it uh, is, is usually sufficient, but if it's reported and someone goes to report and sees that it was reported differently than they think it happened, they can come up to us, they come up to the scorekeeper, and from the back end, we can go in and we can change things. Generally, when that happens, what I want to do is get the other player up there so that we can confirm. We don't want to... um, We don't want to have a situation where we just fix it off of one player's say-so, and then Mm -hmm. the other player comes up later and is like, hey, I won. What's going on? Um, Although that's not particularly difficult to start figuring out because if you tell me that you won and then your opponent comes up and tells me that they won. Okay. So I get the head judge and it's time for them to talk to people and figure this out. Um, But you can have that happen before you even get to the point at the end of the round where someone goes to report and sees that it was reported by the other player backwards. Mm -hmm. Um, Or you can have it once you get to the next round, where a player comes up and says, hey, my points are wrong. Um, Every once in a great while, you'll have that happen a couple of rounds down the road, and that's generally a place where we can't fix it. It's it's the butterfly flaps its wings. We can fix it right after that happens, but when you're two or three rounds down the road and you've had completely different pairings than you would have had, a lot of times – will choose to just leave it as is unless there was some mistake that was made by our staff. And generally at this point, it's not, um, you know, when it was paper result slips and you filled it out correctly and then our scorekeeper entered it wrong, that's something that I'll go back and I'll fix. Yeah. If it's, you know, you entered it wrong on the software, that's not on us. Right. Okay. Thanks. Um, moving on, so obviously SCG has been supporting Magic for a long time. How did supporting Flesh and Blood in the capacity that you guys do now uh, come along? Well, so 
there's kind of two pieces. One is that we got involved with Flesh and Blood as a retailer pretty early on. Yeah. Um, and so we were involved in a lot of the early stuff and making sealed product available in the U.S. And so we were kind of a natural person for them to reach out to because of our history of hosting premier level events with Wizards of the Coast. Um, and so we got a chance to pick up with them, especially after Channel Fireball kind of stopped being involved with events and then mm. sold to TCG player um, and kind of dismantled the, the event side of their operation. Right. Um, we were kind of in a natural position to kind of pick up and, and run with the ball from there. Um, LSS has worked with a number of different organizers and I think probably will continue to try and have multiple organizers available to them. Um, we've mostly been focused on the East Coast, but obviously we're running in Las Vegas. We have the ability to run across country, but especially with SCG cons, we've decided that driving radius is generally correct right. for yeah. us. Um, but, you know, depending on what LSS wants to do, we may wind up doing more events uh, out towards the West Coast. Okay, cool. Have you run events for other games before outside of like Magic before you picked up Flesh and Blood? So we're actually going to be handling the Universe's National Championships in Dallas at our SCG Con event. So that event is going to have Magic events. It's going to have a calling for uh, Flesh and Blood. And then it's also going to have the Universe's uh, National Championships. And so that's going to be an exciting and crowded event. Yeah. Um, we have handled some stuff with uh, Soulforge, with uh, Ascension. We actually did some work with them doing, um, I believe it was a national championship as well. Uh, so we've worked with some other organizers and some other uh, games of different types. Um, and it's really something that can fit into the SCGCon model where we work with, you know, we pull you in for an event or you come in as this piece or at this other event. And it doesn't have to be every single time. If we have something that's as successful as flesh and blood, then that's something that we're going to pick up and just kind of keep running with. Okay, cool. So when you have an event that cross pollinates games, like you were talking about before, do you put any effort into um, like learn to play events there where you can maybe get players interested in one game into another since you are already showing off uh, like, you know, three or four or more games? We've done some of that. Uh, that's usually up to the company. Um, okay. When we did Soulforge, Soulforge came and was he heavily involved as a learn to play with a couple of, um, couple of events over the course of the weekend. Universes has talked about having a learn to play event when we're there in Dallas and you know yes when it's a when it's a game that is kind of coming into the space and wants to catch attention I think that that's where your ideal uh, ideally you want to have learn to play so that people can come in and pick it up and the best way that I've found on that type of thing is to have a couple of scheduled events that are basically a pre-con Mm -hmm. and that let you kind of work your way into it and then give you an opportunity to kind of take a next step if you want to okay. move on to a sealed or something along those lines. Going back to the sort of, I guess, flesh and blood specific mm -hmm. and running events, was it easy to 
um, just start running events uh, because you're so experienced with magic or was it something that was completely different because of the way LSS wants to handle events? So the, uh, the events and the tournaments themselves are, are not particularly difficult for us. We can take players and make sure that we have a space set up properly and that we get the, the proper staff. Um, but honestly, one of the big things that's been an advantage for us with Flesh and Blood is that my assistant manager, Ward Warren, is heavily involved in the judge community. Mm-hmm. And so he had a lot more knowledge and a lot more understanding of how all of that was going to kind of work and, and what nuanced differences there were between flesh and blood and magic. And so we've kind of had a leg up in that area because of his experience. Okay. One of the questions I've been waiting to ask somebody for a long time, <laughs> um, this isn't specifically uh, a monetary question because obviously you're an organized play manager, sure. but obviously fab is relatively new in the industry compared to something mm-hmm. like magic from your perspective as an organized play manager, how big is fab compared to something like magic? I think that's a hard question to answer. Um, I think that it's going to be disappointing to hear that I would say that it's probably five to 10% of yep. it. Um, but at a, an event level, it's actually closer to 50%. Mm-hmm. And I think that the reason for that is magic is a fully developed community and there are a ton of magic players who I'm never going to meet because they don't come out to events. Yeah. I think right now in the development point that F- flesh and blood is at, I'm seeing a much higher proportion of the players than I do for magic. There's a lot more kitchen table magic. There's a lot more people who play commander with their friends. There's a lot more people who, you know, just muck around and play a little bit of sealed with, you know, the people that they sit across from at the lunch table. I think that a lot of the people who are involved in flesh and blood are at this point, competitive players. I think the bar to be a competitive player is fairly low in flesh and blood because there's just not as developed a community. And so if you are a good player, it is reasonable to expect that you can have some success at, a battle hardened or at a skirmish or at a road to nationals event in a way that if you are a good player at magic and you try to go and, and compete at the regional championships, it's unlikely that you are going to be successful at that. Right. Um, there's just more exceptionally high level magic players because it's been around for 30 years, um, you know, for flesh and blood, if you look at that high, high level of flesh and blood player, there is a fairly small community. And then that step below where you're competitive and, you know, maybe you make a top eight of a battle hardened or you top eight a calling or you definitely day two a calling. That type of player is much easier to be in flesh and blood right now. Yeah. Um, and so it keeps most of the players involved in this level of play in a way that that doesn't happen in magic. Um, the other piece is it just hasn't been around long enough to kind of filter out into a more casual. I think a lot of the people who are interested in flesh and blood and a lot of the people who are playing flesh and blood are the people who are into games enough that when they play them, they want to go and play with the best people. 
No, that was a great answer. I had so many questions that you had answered <laughs> in there. Um, do you think that because magic is, or sorry, do you think because of the way magic started, so like before events became a thing, is that part why that we have such a big casual base for magic? And when you look at fab, um, I, time is time is one of the factors as to maybe why we don't have a, a casual base, obviously. But um, it feels also like fab kind of hit the the competitive tournament button like right away. So do you think it's going to take longer for fab or if fab will ever develop a more casual base like commander and kitchen table type stuff? So I definitely believe that you will see flesh and blood shift from the calling being 90% of the players in the room to the calling being 75 and then 60 and then 50% of the players in the room. And that point where you have half of the players who are at a calling for the weekend, not playing in the main event right now, Mm -hmm. everybody wants to play in the main event. Everybody's interested in going and, and, and getting involved in that trying their hand. And then, you know, there are people who scrub out, there are people who go and play in other things, but the number of players who come to a calling and then play in a shapeshifter sealed a half an hour after the calling starts is very low. Right now that has happened. And if you go back a year, that didn't happen. We literally couldn't launch events against, uh, against a calling or against a battle hardened. And now, we're starting to have that that base of players who want to come out and just kind of play a bit as opposed to jump into a tournament that's going to go all day and that you're going to have to grind. And then if you go X and one, you can get to the top eight and then you play off for, for big prizes. There are people who just want to come out and play flesh and blood. And that didn't happen a year and a half, two years ago. And I think we're going to start seeing that kind of ramp up over the next two years. Jared, I I really appreciated your answer to that question, and it's also one that I've been curious in for a very long time. I also wonder if, um, you know, going speaking of Vegas coming up in a little bit, we have a lot of friends that are that are going because it's uh, in a nice location for us in in the western part of uh, North America. But and we have people there that have been playing Dash for years, and they're just so pumped to be able to play Dash or Reinar or went straight into Vincent and very, very excited just to play a new hero. And I I wonder if, um, and I I do hope that that the game continues to strike that balance between... uh, being a really good main or, or really mastering a single hero and being comfortable to take them into a competitive event and, and all of that. So one of the things that I think flesh and blood has going for it just as a game is that the thing that magic kind of lucked into or stumbled into with commander, where you get a character that you identify with and then, build around and build a deck for a long time. And, you know, it matters to you. Flesh of Blood has that as a heart, like core mechanic. And at the heart of the game are the characters. And one of the things that I think you're going to see is that there will be, and you've already identified it, there's Dash players and there are Viscerai players and there are Bolton players. And 
there are going to be people who hold on to characters for a long time. But at that top level, you're going to have players who are hero agnostic. Mm -hmm. And so when it gets to the point that at a calling, you have to be hero agnostic to expect to be competing for the event, that's when you're going to start to see the player who just wants to go and play their deck get shifted to side events. That's when you see that my way to play and to engage with the game is no longer compatible with the main event. And that's okay. That's good. That's a sign of a healthy game. Once you have different ways to play it and once the players get past the I have to go and play in the big thing, that's going to be a big step for Flesh and Blood to take. And we're not quite there, but I think that it's on the horizon. Yeah, that's a really good point, Jared. And I, I am curious how quickly we're getting there or if, and maybe this is really naive on my part, part of me wonders if we're going to get there because flesh and blood doesn't have a lot of the centralizing forces that magic does like all the online play that forces the entire world to or not forces but it, it allows people across the entire world to converge on the optimal beta pretty quickly mm -hmm. and maybe it's just also the fact that there's so many very good players like you identified that are working since every card is spoiled to to solve that meta but flesh and blood and maybe this is just because the game is small seems to be really regional as well i mean we were just watching a pti event in hong kong and the way that they play is much different you can tell than the way that maybe north american players play or european players and maybe that's that just has to do with you know maybe one of those metas is less optimal than the others and given enough time and practice they would converge but maybe not there are different time frames in magic and one of the big ones is when the japanese players really burst onto the scene and so there have always been pockets during in magic in terms of the way that they played and honestly just going around the u.s i could tell you okay we're going to dallas there's going to be a whole bunch of burn we're going to the Midwest. I expect to see a lot more black green and just there are regional metagames, even in magic. And I think mm. you'll still see that to some degree with flesh and blood. But once you start to get the top level play and once you start to push that out and they've done a really good job with coverage and making sure that people are getting a chance to see their big events, that I think is going to not you know, completely flatten, but you're going to see kind of different groups come in and try to bring their style of play to those big events and see whether or not it works. And sometimes they'll come out on top. Sometimes they'll come in and just it, the way that they're playing is not going to be a good fit with either the metagame or the, the manner that, uh, you know, another group is playing and they may just not line up properly or, or not, line up uh, advantageously. But I think that you'll see things flatten a little bit, but you're never going to mm -hmm. lose those regional kind of focuses and those, those regional variations. Um, I think Flesh and Blood is actually in a position to have more of those regional variations because of the way that 
decks are built and because of the hero mechanic, if you have a certain hero that's particularly popular in an area, it's going to warp the whole metagame. And that's different from magic where, oh, control is big. Okay, well, that kind of changes how you attack different things, but it's not the same as, you know, in this area, you know, Lexi is the most popular hero. That's going to change what other people can do to kind of counter that or work off of that or, you know, what cards they're going to decide to play, what equipment sets they're going to decide to play. And then you take that and you uproot a deck that's built for that metagame and bring it over to a different place where it's mostly old in and suddenly that deck is just not going to handle the new environment very well. Right, right. No, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. I wonder how long we start to see those regionalized heroes pick up in fab and then a, a premier event comes along and anybody that's coming from outside of that region attempts to assess that region's metagame as it were and mm-hmm. see if they start to try and counter that or if people just stick with what they think is the top when you know one or two or three meta decks i it'll be an interesting thing but honestly the bigger events don't happen frequently enough to to really sit down and say oh yeah we you know the last three callings in this area this deck has been really big well the mm-hmm. last three callings might have been over the last you know two and a half years fair enough yeah and and you know two and a half years ago you're not looking at that data <laughs> to try and figure out what you should play today yeah so i think it'll it'll stay somewhat regionalized just because you don't get enough big events to to kind of smash it all together i think I it's could. going to be interesting on the top top levels um when you have those pro tours, when you have national championships and stuff along those lines, where you have to smash regions into each other, you know, I think you're going to have times when somebody brings a deck that nobody is expecting. And you're going to have other times when the field is a lot of what you expect. Yeah. Um, We got derailed a little bit from the original (laughs) line of questioning, which is totally fine. Going back uh, to SEG supporting flesh and blood events. um, I was curious have you noticed any differences between the audiences between like flesh and blood and magic? You know, is there anything in particular that a flesh and blood audience wants more in an event or something at uh, magic that you've kind of had to adjust for? I know some of the stuff that we've touched on right now, the flesh and blood audience is pretty competitive. They want those big events. They're really into the promos. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's something that honestly is not as big in magic. I think that that's, largely because LSS has done a really good job handling their promos and making sure that it's worth getting your hands on them. Um, you know, anytime that we do a calling, uh, people are out there trying to pick up those, those cold foil heroes. And that makes a big difference. Um, for magic events, I think that, you know, again, we just have a bigger side events group. You know, there yeah. are a lot more people who come out and want to play two-headed giant than there are that want to come out and play ultimate pit fighter. And, you know, that's just kind of where the games are right now. But in terms of the main event, like I said, we're pulling 90% of the players who are coming out for flesh and blood want to play in the battle heart. They want to play in the PTI. Um, and, you know, they're, they're chasing the qualifications and the gold foil promos, you know, they're again, 
it's just a different feel from, you know, the magic events that we run are, are straight cash tournaments. Right. Um, do you have any insight into whether or not LSS is like interested in promoting other events like UPF or commoner to, to grow the, that side of the game? We certainly try to have those on the schedule when we have the larger LSS events. Um, I, I personally don't feel that UPF has as much of a place in flesh and blood as I think it's, it's kind of the commander analog, but since you're basically already playing commander, every game of flesh and blood, it's a lot different. You know, you don't have to go and play UPF in order to play dash. And so maybe it, it kind of picks up and it hooks on, but I think that it just, it doesn't fill the niche the way that, um, the commander does with, with magic commoner, I think has a, a pretty good hold. It, it was already putting up numbers kind of in line with blitz when we've, when we've run it at previous events. And I think it's going to be a, a format that kind of holds up and, and keeps building. I think it's a real good fit for more casual play. So as a non-commander player, I don't know if you already answered this. Mm. Um, you, you had mentioned that we're already playing UPF or sorry, commander analog. Um, can you like enlighten me or even any listeners that aren't familiar with like the commander side of magic? Uh, I'm not meant? going to pretend that I am, I am a commander aficionado, but <laughs> the main thing about commander is that you choose a character and then you build a deck around that character. Um, and so, you're basically already doing that with okay. every single game of flesh and blood. You have a character that you've built your deck around. And so that's a big hook for yep. commander and for uh, flesh and blood. You kind of already have that in regular games. Okay. I wasn't sure if there was more to it than just that, that aspect. So thank you very much for, for me. That's one of the big things that I see is, you know, in flesh and blood, I'm a dash player, you know, in commander, I play, you know, I don't know, Teferi because I'm a terrible person. <laughs> okay. I, I assume Teferi is the oldem of uh, of magic. I, in which stops, case, we're, it stops yeah. everybody from doing things. It's perfect. Bad. We're the same. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. No, and I, I've been chuckling to myself a little bit for the last few minutes because I, I had mentioned that Flesh and Blood was my first TCG in a long time and because it was my first and I know people are ravenous for promos and cold foils. I thought that was every TCG that loved it because um, even when I went to Indianapolis as the judge, I was like a DoorDash driver in between shifts. Like I'm like taking orders, taking pictures of the prize wall, like <laughs> of the artist, like, do you want this? Do you want that? Like <laughs> Promos are, de are definitely a big thing in just about every game. I just think that LSS has done a really good job of, maintaining their value. A lot of times games will either not use them enough or they will overuse them and push out a ton of a promo to the point where it's just not worth anything. Um, when we ran Grand Prix, they would give out a, uh, the same promotional Grand Prix foil for the entire year, which mm. would mean that there would be probably... 15, 20,000 of them in circulation. 
Wow. Whereas you give out a cold foil hero for one event and there's 350 of them or 600 of them or something along those lines, and they only went out in one geographical location, you've created a scarcity both in actual number and in terms of where they were distributed. You know, Grand Prix foils would go out across the world, you know, when there was one in Sydney, Australia, or there was one in, you know, New Jersey, and then one in LA. And that meant that at the start of the year, when they first handed them out, they'd be going for, you know, 50, 60, $75. And by the end of the year, they'd be going for three. And, you know, that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense in terms of, of being effective use. And so I've really admired how LSS has managed their their promos. Got it. Well, we have some pretty big collectors up here, and yeah, it's uh, I know it's hard to resist a lot of those. That's awesome. So we'll move on to our next uh, question here, and I am curious what happens, um, or if you could give a little bit of insight about what happens behind the scenes um, to support all of these events from the planning stage all the way up to execution and running the event. I guess my first question would be just how many people are involved with an SCG to make these events run? Sure. Uh, so my boss, John Suarez, the general manager, is in charge of, you know, kind of overseeing everything that goes into the event. Um, I handle the tournament side of things, but he's also involved in our, uh, our vendor booth as well as coordinating with LSS around contracting the uh, people for coverage or, you know, working with the people that we're sending to, to assist with that. Um, when we did the pro tour, that was entirely our team kind of behind the computers and then uh, contractors uh, like Brian Gottlieb and Tannen Grace doing commentator, doing uh, commentary. Um, so he's involved in kind of overseeing the whole piece. I'm in charge of the tournament side of things. Uh, along with my assistant manager, Ward Warren, who I mentioned earlier. Um, John uh, and I also work with Amanda Rose Sweeney, who does logistics and booking and handles a lot of the work directly with the convention centers, uh, as well as any sort of hotels that or you need and, and all of that. Um, Gail Senador works with us on the prize wall. And so... Um, She's the point person for making sure that all of the cool stuff is out there so that uh, when players play inside events, they get their prize wall tickets, they come up and they can get all sorts of, of neat stuff. And then uh, the rest of my OP team, John Vorderbergen, Micah Miller, and Ash White uh, help with all of the preparation for the event and then set up, tear down, and everything in between, making sure that players get into their events, that the events are score kept and all of that, and then you know, outside of my department, we bring a vendor booth to to every show. And then there's also just in-office support for making sure that all of the cards get to the vendor booth and all of the orders that are made online get sent to the event. Mm -hmm. There's a ton of people who are there uh, helping out with that from start to finish. No, got it. So it sounds like your direct team is around seven or eight people. Yep. Big, yeah. That seems like a pretty small team for, I mean, in the thick of it, you're running an event like an SCG con or a smaller event, like every other week almost for, for so some we, of it. So we run about one a month. Um, mm. Now, that said, 
in two weeks we're going to be in Vegas and then the week after we're going to be in Columbus. And so yeah. every once in a while, something like that happens, but Got it. most of the time we're about one per month and it, it varies from about three weeks in between to six weeks in between, depending on, on how the schedule kind of falls out. After Columbus, we have Dallas in uh, October, and that's about a six-week gap. And then okay. we have Pittsburgh in November, which is a three-week gap. And then we don't have anything in December. I okay. don't know what's going on in 2024 yet, but I expect to be about that same cadence where we're about one per month. Um, okay. Now, that said, a lot of my team does other events, and so they are – they are running a bit more than that. And uh, a few years ago, we ran many more events. We ran about 30 events a year where we were wow. legitimately doing every other event, every other weekend, and just kind of in and out, in and out, in and out. But at that point, I had a much larger team, and we would send basically Team A and Team B, Team A and Team B. Um, and now my entire team goes to all of the events. Was there anything that spurred that drop off in events? Uh, so we shifted the way that we handled um, the SCG tour. We had more, much more of a series of events leading into a um, into a final event. You'd qualify for an invitational. Out of the invitational, you could qualify for a players' championship, and it was a much more kind of integrated thing. And then the pandemic hit, and everything just stopped. Right. We had shifted away from some of the stuff that we were doing because we started running not just our big events, but also some slightly smaller events that would be one day 5Ks that were a little bit closer to the office where we would drive out on Friday, run the event on Saturday, and then drive back on Sunday. And so we had a ton of, of events over a couple of years, and then we drew back from that to be closer to... 20 events a year, somewhere in that range, but they would all be the bigger full weekend events. Hmm. Um, but when the pandemic hit, um, obviously all of the in-person play stopped. Yep. Some of our, our team shifted to um, different departments. Some of our team left. And then um, when we kind of came back to running events at the start of 2022, I had basically me, Ward, and John Vorderbruggen, who had made it through the pandemic. And then we picked up Micah, and Gail was working with the prize wall, but the prize wall was working with the vendor booth rather than directly with organized play. Right. And so we started off with just the four of us running stuff, and then we picked up Ash earlier this year, and uh, Gail shifted over earlier this year so that the prize wall, since we moved it physically away from the vendor booth, it's more tied to organized play and the side events and all of that. And so we brought it over into my department. But we have basically what we need with everybody going. So yep. if, we, if we are missing people, then we're missing things. Right. So is... Do you think that you'll go back to something like 30 events a year or has the world changed too much or it's just not logistically worth it anymore? I would be surprised. Um, I don't think that's where we are or where the community is. Hmm. Now, 
there are things that could change my mind on that. Um, but right now the competitive magic scene has not returned to where it was pre pandemic. Right. Um, the first couple of events back, it was really robust and then it fell off pretty quickly. Um, we have not had a series where, where it kind of carries over and gets people engaged for an extended period of time. We've right. been doing just standalone events and I, I don't think that's bad, but it's different. And so there's not quite as, there's not quite as many players coming out for the main event. There's honestly more players coming out for the side events that we've had. Um, one of the things that's happened is that since the pandemic, we've actually been able to pick up and do pre-release events um, at SEG cons. Okay. And that's been uh that's been kind of a boon and kind of driven side events. Um, but I wouldn't expect us to jump up too much in terms of the number of events that we're running. We're also running full three day events when before the pandemic, um, most of the, I think we, we started doing that some of the time, but we were mostly running Friday, Saturday, right? Yeah. Uh, sorry, Saturday, Sunday events, uh, without the Friday. Okay, cool. Thank you. So how far in advance do you typically need to start planning something like an SCG con or, or anything like that? We're usually planning SCG cons about six to nine months out. Um, and a lot of that is about just getting in touch with venues uh, that we know can host. Uh, once you are looking at you know, 50, 60,000 square foot rooms, you're cutting down the number of places that you can go pretty quickly. Uh, and so you need to make sure that it's an area where they have the space and also where you want to be. It's got to be an area that you know, functions for bringing 1, 1,500 people into that space and being able to have them get out to food, get out to, you know, have places to stay. Um, and that, you know, cuts out some other places as well. Um, so we have kind of the list of places that we're comfortable going and we're always in contact with them to figure out when they are available. Um, and then we try and fit things in and create a schedule that moves around and, you know, gets to areas that we haven't been to in a while and stuff like that. Okay. No, that's, that's really interesting. And, you, you mentioned before that um, that Vegas was something that was a little bit out of the norm for SCG, just being a little bit further away from driving distance for yeah. for you. Was that something that LSS asked for, like to be on the other side of North America? Or did SCG think it would be a cool thing to do? Or can you shed some light no, into in, that? In that case, it was LSS was ready to have the event in Las Vegas. And so that's mm. where they wanted to have it. And so that's where we are. We are hosting it. Um, when we work with LSS for flesh and blood exclusive events, they have a lot more uh, say on where we go to, you know, they may say, Hey, I want to be on this weekend or I want to be in this place. Um, you can generally do one or the other. <laughs> you don't get to say, I want to be in this place on this weekend, well, that's great. Except if the convention center is booked for something else, then we probably can't do that. 
you can say, I want to be in this area. We'd like to be in the Northeast on this weekend and we can go and look and try and find one of the five or six venues in that area that we can make work. Um, but you know, it's not as simple as saying, Oh, we'd like to run a pro tour in Atlanta on September 10th next year. Right. Okay. But if, if none of the Atlanta venues have a space on that, on that weekend, then I can't do it. (laughs) Right. So is it primarily driven by LSS where they want an event held and, or is it a conversation back and forth with uh, you and Further to that, um, does the size of the event, so if it's a battle hardened versus a pro tour, does that make a difference in the conversation? So for the battle hardened events that are happening at SCG cons, that's pretty much all in our uh, court. We get to decide where we're running our SCG cons and LSS uh, has basically said to us, when you're running SCG cons, you can run a battle hardened and you can run a, a PTI. Okay. Uh, now we confirm all of that once we have a schedule and we make sure that things are okay. If they came back to us and said, Hey, we really don't want to run in this area, then they could very easily, they could just say, Hey, we don't want to do that. Um, but in general, we've, we've worked with them and they know if we're running an SCG con, we'd like to run those events for them. When they are working with us for something like us nationals or a pro tour, then there's a lot more back and forth as to, Hey, we really want to have it on this weekend or we really want to have it in this area. What options do you have? And we go out and we work with the venues to come back and say, Hey, we can do this or we can do that. And which one of these works for you? That's really interesting. Logistically going to Vegas, does that just mean the trucks have to drive a little bit further or are there any other curveballs or complications that that poses? Well, the other big thing is that our staff has to fly. Hmm. Um, usually for, Almost every show, except you know, it's going to be Vegas, and then we've got Dallas in October, um, and so for both of those, where our staff is getting onto a plane, but in general, we get into cars and vans and, and drive to the events. You know, we'll drive anywhere up to twelve hours to get to um, get to an event, but most of ours are in that six to eight hour range. Um, Indianapolis is about eight. You know, we're going to be going to Columbus. That's about six to six and a half from Roanoke. Roanoke's surprisingly centrally located. Um, you know, we'll go up to New Jersey. That was like just over eight hours to get up there. Baltimore is about four and a half. Philadelphia is about six. So. Okay. No, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, you alluded to this uh, a little bit earlier when we were talking about all the different events and the way things were pre-pandemic and as the organized play manager for SCG now, I'm wondering what's the in-person TCG and tournament scene like for you in 2023 today? Is it a scary place to be? Do you have any concerns about the long-term viability of the business or have there been good signs with things like flesh and blood showing that there is still an appetite for for competitive in-person play? I think that we're in a pretty good place where what I would like to see is a little bit of recovery for magic competitive play. I'm really happy and excited for what's going to happen with flesh and blood play. Um, It's continued to grow. It's continued to be a bright spot and just, you know, kind of step up, step up, step up. And I'm really excited to see it kind of 
snowball into the side events being something as well as the main event. I think that I we first started to see that at U.S. Nationals last year in Charlotte, where we started U.S. Nationals and then immediately had a 100-player event uh, just running basically alongside it. And so mm-hmm. I think that it's still going to take a little bit for that to happen alongside a calling where it's an open entry event. I think that part of it was you had a bunch of people who came out and tried to last chance qualify and then didn't and wanted to play. And so that's that's something that I think is going to be exciting is that there's going to be more of that expansion outside of just the calling, outside of just the battle hardened. And, you know, with those continuing to grow and continuing to build numbers, I think that that's going to be uh, exciting. The, um, the magic numbers have not been what I want them to be, uh, but I also think that magic organized play has been recovering and kind of getting its feet over the past year and a half. And so hopefully with a little bit more stability that will, you'll start to see where different pieces fit in and you'll start to see players understand that more and decide what they want to go and play. Okay. No, that's really interesting. Um, I am also curious, do you have any concerns about more and more digital play? I know there were, this thing comes in waves, right? Like MTGO, and then Arena, and I know Flesh and Blood hasn't gotten there, and perhaps it, it won't, but maybe it will. I don't know. My but... understanding is that LSS has not, has specifically not made that a priority. Um, that right. they want this to be a Flesh and Blood game where you come and you bring yourself out to an event and you go sit with other people and you go play this game with other people. I think that's something that is really important to James and really important to the flesh and blood team for magic. I don't think that arena replaces what we offer. A large event is just a different experience. I love arena. I, I draft all the time. It's a, it's a way that I can find eight players to indulge (laughs) me whenever I want to do that. And that's just not easy to do. I, you know, I'll go and I'll try and find a draft when I go out to a city and I have a free Thursday night and it's not easy to do. Um, but, you know, I boot up Arena and I can have it in 30 seconds. Right. Um, so it fills a, a hole, but I don't think it fills the same space as we do. Yeah, for, for sure. And and even tying this back to um, some of our earlier conversations about promos and you alluded to the prize wall. I mean, even for someone like myself, I don't consider myself a big collector, but e- even I take a look at some of the shiny things for heroes that I really enjoy and I'm really tempted. Hey, well, there's cool a gold stuff foil. Is cool yeah, stuff, man. <laughs> that's right. There's a, hey, there's a gold foil silver palms for the UPF event or there's the world... <laughs> world guide for the commoner event like that that kind of stuff i hope yeah like you said it'll it'll come more and more so we're winding down the the interview here uh just a couple more questions for you sure Uh, when it comes to events in your eyes as the organized play manager what makes an event successful to you so there's kind of two two different things and i you know there's there's obviously 
how do we make this successful in the way that I get to keep doing it because my boss thinks that it's worth doing. And mm -hmm. that's going to be about attendance and the number of events that we we run and how many players are in them. And so it's it's about unique players who come out and then entries into events over the course of the weekend. Um, but in terms of at an event, what makes it feel successful for me is making sure that players are having a good time, making sure that we're doing as much as we can to get the barriers to playing at a large event out of the way. One of the things that I'm always proud of is when we really don't have lines. There are times when we'll have, you know, five people in line and then that's it. And we'll, we'll clear that out. But yep. the times that I feel like we're kind of letting the players down is when I look out and there's, you know, 40, 50 people in line and we've been doing a real good job at not having that happen. Um, a lot of that is having online registration available so that you don't have to get into a line and talk to somebody to get something solved to get into an event. You can just sign up and then come and play. And so as much as possible, we want to have that be an option and just have the people who need something special or need to play, pay in cash. If we can narrow the number of people who need to talk to us, then we're, we're killing those lines before they exist. And then just, you know, we have some great staff that work with us on stage and they're able to move through people really quickly and make sure that they're helping them out, that they're, they're getting the move through fast and getting them out to play flesh and blood, to play magic, to have fun rather than engage with us to try and figure out how to have fun. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think it's what people want to hear that ease of access and simplicity is really what people want. And obviously, yeah, you want to get them playing in whatever events that they want to as soon as possible and, you know, skipping the dreaded lines and <laughs> whatever goes along with that. So has SCG picking up fab been successful when it comes to events for you guys? Absolutely. How, however you want to measure that. Yeah, I, I think that it's been very successful. Um, anytime that I can pick something up and then be consistently getting 100 players every weekend, that's that's a big thing. Cool. I got one final question on this topic. Um, is there anything that the fab community can do to help the ongoing success of premier level events? I come out, <laughs> you know, the, like it's, it's really quite simple. If you are, if you are interested in these events happening, then come out and, and basically help the event, put up the numbers that are going to make us want to do it again. Um, I think that right now that's happening. I, I'm not yeah. trying to say, Oh, you have to come out or else they're going to go away. That's not where I am at all. But if you want these to be successful, you know, one of the metrics is how many people come to the events. That's a, a really good segue into my final question for you, Jared. And it's, it, it's a question that I, I hope um, will speak to maybe some of the, you know, an essential part of the community judges and, for for many judges, something like a battle hardened at an SCG mm -hmm. con or a calling, for example, could be their first springboard from being a local only judge to being more comfortable at 
higher level events, but it could be intimidating to apply if you don't have that experience. Sure. So I'm wondering, yeah, is there anything that you could offer for advice? What can judges do to better themselves to, uh, to be more attractive to, uh, to be considered? So I, this is actually going to sound counterintuitive, but it's probably easier to get on a calling than it is to get on an SCG con event. I've got generally five slots for judges at a standard SCG con with a battle hardened. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've got, you know, 25 slots at a calling. And I just need more bodies there. And so that makes it easier. It's easier to be number 25 than it is to be number five. Um, now right. we try to look for opportunities for newer judges for people who have put in the work and certified. And if we don't know you, it's hard for us to say, hey, we're going to take you for the whole weekend. Uh, so if you can apply for a day, if it's a local event to you where it's easy for you to come in in the morning and then go home at night and make you know the, the comp that you get over the course of the day work for you and you're not having to pay for a hotel room on the front end and on the back end, then that makes a big difference for us because generally I have a slot for a one day person at SEG con events, Saturday only. And that's a slot that we quite often try to look for somebody that we don't necessarily know, but we have a recommendation from somebody, um, you know, Hey, I've worked with Ryan Wood. I've worked with Brandon Welch. I've worked with Dan Collins. Right. Um, and, you know, I'll reach out to them and say, hey, so-and-so, you know, Felix Chung says that they, they've worked with you. What do you know about them? And, you know, they come back to me and say, oh, yeah, that's somebody that you should really, you know, try and find a slot for. Then I definitely will. Um, but with SCG cons, I'm generally getting – 10 to 12 applications for five slots for a calling. I'm generally getting, you know, 35 to 40 applications for 25 to 30 slots. And so it's easier to find that space on, on the bigger events. So I think that that's, that's the weird thing that people might not expect is actually it's easier to get you onto the bigger event than it mm -hmm. is to, to get you onto the, event where it's just the battle hardened that makes a lot of sense thank you well thanks very much for your time jared absolutely um, we usually end up with um you know a question something like do you have any closing closing thoughts that you want to share or anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to let our listeners know about while we got you here um well i guess the big thing that kind of follows on to the the judging question is we have a SCG judge discord and that's where we make all of our posts and announcements about uh, events that we are soliciting for, um, for flesh and blood events. We'll also push it on to uh, judge.fabtcg.com. Uh, okay. Uh, I th that's called judge hub. If I remember judge correctly. Hub, yeah. Yep. Um, and then there's also a judge hub discord as well, where all of our uh, application stuff pushes out to that discord as well if you're interested in becoming a judge that judge hub discord is a great place to be and it's also a great place to ask some questions kind of connect with some people in your area so that it's not you know those references don't happen out of nowhere yeah. if you have you know local events where somebody's running a battle hardened kind of in your area and you get a chance to 
get out and work that event with one of your local level twos or, you know, even just a, a leading level one in your area that can be kind of a stepping stone to larger events. Perfect. Thank you. Um, so I guess before we close out, if somebody wanted to reach out to you, um, mm-hmm. why, what, what things should they be reaching out to you for? And in general, what, where should they go for general questions that's not specific related to you? And if you have any socials that you'd like to mention while we're here, if you've got general questions for, um, around any star city games events, the email is organized play at starcitygames.com. And probably you'll get an email back from me. Uh, but, uh, that goes into a shared mailbox. So if I'm out of the office, somebody else can grab it as well. Um, and then honestly, the best way to get a hold of me is probably Discord. And that's going to be either on the SEG Judge uh, server or there's an SEG Con server as well. Um, and on both of those, I'm an admin and you should be able to find me right up at the top if you want to get a hold of me. Um, I, I technically have Twitter. It's at Jared Silva, but I don't tweet. <laughs> Uh, or whatever. Yeah, I don't think anyone Elon's tweets anymore. Now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I haven't picked up threads or anything along those lines. Um, Discord's really the way that I, I reach out. I guess I'm technically on Facebook too. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm I'm not that hard to find. But uh, I just don't I don't do much. I deleted Twitter from my phone. So yeah, that's fair. Good for you. <laughs> I think I, I think I technically can still get to it. No. Well, thank you so much for for your time here, Jared. It was really Absolutely. great speaking to you. And you can find us at YouTube at IP Two Podcast on Twitter IP Two Podcast and on Mastodon IP Two Podcast at Wraith Social. Thank you. for audacity sounds good this is old school okay three two one clap (laughs) nope i did i clapped sorry you did three two one clap and i did three two clap so i think i screwed it all up you want to do it again yeah let's do it one more time okay (laughs) three two one clap